Hello and welcome to our latest Beyond Brexit podcast. I'm Emily Khan. Despite having had the rather unusual experience of hosting the Prime Minister in our offices for her so-called Charing Cross speech, PwC speech being considered too dull, the cheek, in this episode we are putting political disruption to one side and casting our sights to the horizon to explore the future relationship between the UK and the EU and the rest of the world. I'll leave the politics for my new besties on Brexit cast. So I'm joined today by two PwC colleagues, familiar voice of Phil Brown, our senior trade advisor, and Don Boyle, trade economist in our international development team, making his Beyond Brexit podcast debut to talk trade, gravity models and services. We're also delighted to welcome a special guest, Dr. Minako Marita Yeager, Associate Fellow at the UK Trade Policy Observatory and specialist in trade and services and Asia-EU trading relations. Dom, I'd like to come to you first, if I may. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the big picture stuff. You've recently been working, I understand, on some research on gravity models and whether or not they apply to services. Can we start with an overview of, of what gravity models are and what you found out? We can. Yeah, sure. Thanks. And nice to be here. Um, so in a nutshell, the gravity model is very similar to the model in physics, which is about two objects being attracted to each other when they're larger. And in trade terms, it means that two economies that are closer together or are bigger are likely to be more attracted. So, for example, the US is closest to Mexico and Canada. Yeah. So those are its two biggest trading partners. But you would also expect that Canada would have more share of the trade because its economy is bigger. And that is what the data shows. Now, for the UK, the larger, closer European economies of France, Germany, the Netherlands, and to an extent Ireland, which is obviously okay. very close, um, are some of our biggest trading partners. Our other, well, actually our biggest trading partner is the US. And that obviously is further away. Yeah. But the size of the US GDP is actually bigger than our top, our next 10 trading partners combined. Yeah, okay. So as you can see, both distance and size are important. So that relationship in itself is not massively surprising. You would expect that you trade more with closer, bigger neighbours. But what is slightly surprising is the sheer strength of that relationship. And what economists have tried to do over time is to correct for other factors that may be driving trade. So common language, common history, um, actually things like free trade areas yeah. and shared currencies, which are obviously very important. And no matter how much they use econometrics and statistics, we can't seem to get rid of the effect of distance. So distance is, if you got rid of all those things, distance would still be very important. Okay. The second reason is that that relationship seems to not be getting weaker over time as we may have expected. So with containerization starting in the 70s, transport costs have plummeted over the last few decades. And at the same time, services such as accounting and tax returns can all be done online. Yeah. And we would have expected that that would make the world smaller. So therefore trade is, easier and therefore distance would be less important. But actually what our previous research into trading goods found was that distance has become more important over time. Okay. So we may want to, trap, uh, to trade with economies that are closer. So your more recent research focused on services and you just mentioned accountancy as an example there. Tell me a bit more about what we've learned specifically about services. Sure. So ser services are a slightly more thorny issue than goods because they're harder to observe because yeah. they're intangible. Of course. So um, things like engineering, finance and marketing um, involve people rather than objects and they're complex. So while you can put tariffs on Chinese steel and quotas on Spanish oranges, it's much harder to stop an accountant from practicing in a country. And you have to use things like visa restrictions mm -hmm. and licensing to do that. Um, and 
that's despite the fact that services do make up 25% of world trade. And even though that's obviously a very important quota, um, and, and also for the UK, it makes up, as you said, 47%, they don't receive the same attention in trade negotiations because they're difficult. Um, so our latest research looked at the effect of distance on trade for the UK for services. And what we found is that a doubling of the distance between the UK and a trading partner would decrease the trade in services by almost half, right. which is more or less the same as we found for goods trade. Um, but this is particularly relevant for the UK because we do export a lot more services than anyone else. Mm. So apart from the US, in absolute terms, we're the world's biggest service exporter. So... Yes, lots to consider. Absolutely. So it sounds, and correct me if I'm wrong, so it sounds like, broadly speaking, um, the gravity model still holds true for goods and still holds true for services. Were there any surprises as you went through this? Any categories of services that stood out where it doesn't maybe look quite that way? Sure. Well, I mean, as you say, trade doesn't happen country by country. It happens sector by sector. Yeah. And so we did look at all the sectors in detail and we found lots of difference between them as we we did expect. So at one end, things like manufacturing based services, so repairs and construction are very limited by distance. And we assumed that would be the case because manufacturing is limited mm -hmm. by distance. And at the other end, cultural exports, things like film and TV, so exports of Simon Cowell and David Attenborough, don't seem to be constrained by distance at all. Okay. Um, and, and what was kind of, what I found interesting was things in the middle like other business services and finance, things that you could do online are actually very susceptible to distance. And we don't know why that is, it doesn't show up in the data, but we assume it's because of the trust-based relationships yeah. that people like ourselves in consulting and accounting and marketing rely on. That's interesting actually. In one of our previous podcasts, we talked for quite a long time about um, exporting being as much about hearts and minds as it is about tariffs and quotas. So clearly that has some relevance to, to the point you're just making there about trust. Um, Minico, just reflecting on that theory, and Dom mentioned there that services are not often focused on in, in free trade agreements because they're more difficult. How are they treated differently to goods in, in trade negotiations and trade relationships? So the currently, they're about 140 140 FTAs covering services. Okay. And then some example of recently concluded FTAs, uh, well, if I can say that, well, the EU-Canada FTA. Yeah. And uh, CPTPP is more for the, um, well, the, the Asia-Pacific area. Okay. And the EU-Japan FTA. Yeah. And in comparison with the goods trade agreement, where elimination of tariff is conventionally the major negotiating agenda, mm -hmm. services trade and negotiations are all about regulations. Right. There are two major benefits of FTAs. The first benefit is providing opportunity for further market liberalization than the degree of liberalization achieved in the so right. the, and under the multilateral trading system. Okay. And then the second benefit is promoting regulatory cooperation among FTA members. Right. So on the other hand, I have to, well, we have to recognize the reality of services trade agreements. So that is, well, in the first place, the degree of liberalization and the applied policy is much higher than the guts. Okay. And... Um, this is because governments wanted to keep policy space, which is a flexibility to change its services trade policy anytime they want. Yeah. They don't want to bound by the international agreement. So FTAs can narrow such policy space by committing higher level 
of liberalization among the FTA members. Mm -hmm. But the existing FTAs could really achieve new liberalization than the applied policy level. Yeah. So the indeed service trade agreements do not lead to actual trade liberalization. So what does this mean to for businesses? So yeah. FTAs can provide legal certainty to business, but nothing really more than that. Right, okay. So that to me sounds like an awful lot of barriers in the way of getting comprehensive free trade agreements for yeah. services. Yes. So there's domestic drivers to retain as much freedom as possible in your policy making. Mm -hmm. um, there's regulatory complexity, mm -hmm. there's a rich mix of different sectors with different mm -hmm. needs, mm -hmm. and then there's technological disruption and advancement. That's right. Um, which is quite a challenging picture. Indeed. Can I just ask you mm -hmm. specifically, you mentioned at the beginning there the EU-Japan agreement as an example of a recent agreement. What did they do in terms of cutting through some of that complexity? Was, was some progress made in that agreement? Yes, yes, well, they made a world of progress. Well, you know, that media reported the EU-Japan Economic Partnership Agreement, they said, as a cheese for cars. But okay. the real value <laughs> of the agreement goes beyond the tariffs. Yeah. So the EU-Japan EPA, that's a recent economic partnership agreement, yeah. EPA, treats services in chapter of trading services, investment liberalization, and e-commerce. Okay. And then the agreement also cover the issue of high interest of the services sectors, such as intellectual property, regulatory cooperation, and public procurement. So as for services liberalization well, commitment, the EU-Japan EPA took a negative list approach so that is, well, the, this is like the case of the EU-Canada FTA. So the negative list approach enables FTA parties to commit to full liberalization, including future initiatives, unless they make reservations. Right, okay. So it's, it's free unless they declare otherwise, exactly. rather than it only includes the things exactly. they've specified. Yes. Okay. So the liberalization commitment in the EU-Japan EPA facilitate businesses, particularly in the area of, of telecommunications, transport, and financial services. Right. On the other hand, well, the, as always the case of the EU-related FTA, it carves out audiovisual services, which is one of the UK's, you know, strong export Absolutely. And, um, so they also, the one thing I'd like to add is um, the EU-Japan EPA go beyond the EU-Canada FTA in the area of movement of people for business purposes. Okay. And um, also the chapter on e-commerce in the EU-Japan EPA plus EU-Japan data agreement on equivalence enabled data transfer without prior authorization or user consent between the EU and Japan. And then lastly, I'd like to know that EPA is not the finished business. That yeah. means, well, the, under the EPA, the Committee on Trading Services, Investment Liberalization and E-Commerce was established. So in this way, the bilateral dialogue will continue in order to respond to business needs. So inputs from businesses are very important. Great. Yeah. Phil, I'd like to draw you in now, if I may. Um, and you and I have spoken many times before about where the future relationship between the UK and the EU might go. And I know, in fact, you know the EU-Canada agreement intimately. Um, what's your take on what all of 
what we've heard from Dom and Minico means for where the relationship between the UK and the EU might go? What should we be looking at? Mm, I think, yeah, it's a fascinating um, discussion. So let, look, first of all, just to clarify, you know, let's look at what we've, we've got now. Um, you know, the single market is an amazing achievement. You've got the highest levels of integration, way, way beyond any of the sort of free trade agreements that you've talked about there, Minico. But it's still incomplete and there are still many barriers within the single market. So you talked about e-commerce. Well, the digital single market, that's far from complete. Um, the professions, there's lots of restrictions in regulated sectors and in the professions, even like professions like accounting, engineering and architecture, right? The qualifications are recognized in the EU, but firms may still need to complete really complicated legal and shareholding requirements in order to be able to serve a particular market. So, yeah. there's, there's, you know, it's, it's unrivaled for its integration but it's some way away from being fully harmonized now. So actually in practice, the companies and our clients have sort of worked around, without realizing in a sense, they've worked around it. And you know, it's far from perfect, but as we leave, we can be very clear that we're gonna get less access to the EU market for services. And actually we should be working on the basis that we'll have the same access as other countries. Yeah. Um, so if you look at the political framework for the future relationship, they had the customs union as ambitions mm -hmm. and um, what was that next, last October, last November, that, yeah. was, that was a degreed. Um, it's basically, when you read it, and Minica, I'm sure you've looked at it as well, it's, it's basically an ambitious free trade agreement. That's, that's what it looks yeah. like. You know, the customs stuff, there's all this stuff about high aspirations, about frictionless trade, mm -hmm. yet pol your own trade policy. This looks like an ambitious Canada Plus uh, free trade agreement, EPA, you know, Japan, whatever you want to call it, going further in certain areas. So let's take Canada. You know, there's an aim in the Canada to have a process to mutually recognize qualifications. Well, in the EU, the UK, there's an aspiration to recognize them. And you can see that we already have that in place. Yeah. So you, you think you can get more progress there. You've got data that you talked about as well, Minica, briefly earlier on. Uh, one of the two of you, Dom, um, talked about data and the importance of that. Um, that's, you know, that's something where we'll get that sort of mutual recognition there. Financial services will go a bit further. Um, it still won't be anything like what we have at the moment because you know, there's prudential requirements and, cons and conservative perspectives in Canada have sort of restricted more progress there. But it's kind of a Canada plus. That's what we're looking mm. at here. And, and that does mean then if we, if we get a deal, we'll have less access and it will be harder to trade. Um, and if we don't get a deal, then it's going to be worse. But as you said, Minico, earlier on, actually, free trade agreements don't actually give you that much more liberalisation than yeah. what countries are offering anyway. What they do is legally lock it in and okay. gives you that certainty and security. Which, as we know, certainty is exactly what many businesses are crying out for at the moment. If you're moment, taking so a big investment decision yeah. um, or, or, or you know, just even looking at your business and operating model, you want to be sure that you can set it up and it will, have, you know, it will last. Yeah. Um, so just, you know, I, I guess you know, just to wrap up, I mean, what does it mean for business? It's a much more complicated, as we've been discussing, picture than it is for goods trade. Um, and actually, for, for some, it's not going to be that much change. The EU is already quite open overall. If you've got commercial presence and you're not, not operating in a regulated area, you might be able to carry on doing what you're doing already, mm -hmm. except for the movement to people, which we'll maybe chat, chat yeah, about later. Uh, but if you're in a regulated area, then you know, you're going to have some very major changes. You might have to set up an EU subsidy, um, subsidiary to serve the market. You might then have to hire new staff who've got the relevant qualifications in order to practice in that market. Yeah, right, so it, okay. uh, it's going to vary. Minika, I can see you nodding avidly there and indeed taking a note. Well done, Phil. Um, is there anything you wanted to add to, to add to what Phil just said? Well, I just fully agree with Phil. And then actually the point he made as the level of the liberalization within the EU single market is non liable in comparison with the in terms of the non relation with non EU yeah. countries. And then I just would like to, well, that spotlight the, um, the fact that um, well, the 
service liberalization under FTA is an action toward market integration. But when it comes to the future UK-EU negotiations, yeah. it's completely opposite. I mean, that that's, it's a, well, the negotiation towards disintegration. Yes. So this negotiation is complete, really, really challenging and unprecedented case yeah. exercises. And how we can just, you know, disentangle, disentangle the very complicated, delicated, you know, the services relationship and in the, that's established for decades, and that's its real challenge. Yeah, or that's Brexit. A, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's a really good <laughs> reminder that it's it's not a fair comparison to compare this discussion to the EU Japan or the EU Canada discussion because right. it's a completely different start and end point. I'm going to pick up on that point you've made about immigration because actually all three of you have have touched on the importance of the movement of people, mm. um, and I know that's something that we as a firm have been looking very closely. At closely at. So maybe, perhaps, Phil, you could start by how do you think that's likely to be treated in the UK-EU relationship further down the line? Well, I think we can assume it's not going to be as it is now. <laughs> I mean, rightly, the Brexit vote's been interpreted, you know, in most cases about sort of wanting to control immigration. And when you look at the political framework as that's set out as well, it's very clear the UK will put in place its own, I can't remember the exact terminology, it basically will control immigration. It will not have free movement. Uh, and that's going to be really very important indeed for yeah. our clients. And that's just then not just what we're talking about, the regulated sectors. We're talking about most businesses who have got a trading relationship um, with the EU. And, and, you know, again, sort of building on what you were saying at the beginning, actually, Dom, you know, we talk about digital trade quite a lot and e-commerce, and that's a big focus for the WTO, World Trade Organization, and, you know, rightly so, big progress in Japan. Um, and it is going to become more and more important. But most services are still provided in person, hence the gravity model findings. So that's whether it's through, you know, setting up and, and ser providing services in a country and country commercial presence, traveling across the border to provide, say, consultancy services or what have you, or traveling to another country to consume a service, you know, go and get to a dentist or go on holiday or, or whatever. So, you know, and to put that in perspective, less than a quarter, it's, what, 21%? of EU exports to the rest of the world are provided remotely. The rest provided through physical presence in some way or another. Um, and this isn't just services companies either, right? So Rolls-Royce is a reasonably well-known example. They make more money from their maintenance aftercare services uh, business, and they do actually selling and building the actual engines themselves. So it affects you know, most, most companies, okay. even non-traditional services. I think it's really interesting, the point. And if I reflect on the experience that we've had here at PwC in preparing for Brexit, um, travel is one of the risks that's been hardest to mitigate because it's not just a kind of systems and process and a structural issue, it's a cultural issue. Mm. You know, we have a whole generation of people who are used to being able to hop on a plane um, of a day and go and do our jobs in another country. You know, I've done jobs in Paris, in Amsterdam, um, without a second thought. So we've had to look not only at making sure that we've got the systems and the processes in place, but also the kind of hearts and minds issue that every individual in this organisation who's used to operating in that way is taking it seriously mm -hmm. and thinking about how they change their own ways of working, which is, which is a big change challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think the people aspect is very interesting. I can't forecast what's going to happen from Brexit, but there is a lot that business can do even kind of underneath whatever the politicians are doing. And mm. one of the things we looked at in our piece of research was how the US treats licensing. And it was actually a piece of research The Economist did, which found that 49 out of 50 states require a license to be a manicurist. 
and Louisiana requires florists to have a license. Now, that's within a state. So if you live in Alabama, you can't practice as a florist in Louisiana without having a license. And that's regardless of what the US policy is on British or Japanese immigrants. Yeah. So there's a lot that we can do. Now, we, the, the EU services uh, trade is not perfect, as we know, it's not finished. And one of the estimates is that 14% GDP would increase if it was a complete, if, if the services agreement was completely open. Now, we're not going to get there, I don't think, largely because a lot of it does rely on people. Mm. But there are also aspects of services trade that don't rely on people that are not as emotional. And so things like data, I mean, that's one of the key things we found is let's focus on things like what they call the fifth movement, the fifth freedom yeah. of the EU, which is data. Now, GDPR has been something that's actually been a very successful rollout and everyone seems to have agreed on it. You know, in large part. So things like that, things that are not going to be emotional, are not going to irk voters mm. um, and are achievable would be a good place for business to start um, regardless of what the politicians yeah, are doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that data, if I reflect on kind of the advice we've been giving for businesses throughout this Brexit process, data is a consistent theme throughout it all and making sure that you've got your, your data house in order for whichever purpose you need it has been something we've been, we've been clear on throughout. Phil, what's what's your reflection on, on what Dom's just shared? Um, you know, we, we we hear as well, just to sort of we talk about um, business, um, visa-free business, short-term business travel, and you talked about that in the context of Japan. Um, but that that's all very well on the surface. That seems really great. But when you actually look at what sort of business you can conduct, um, and correct me if I'm wrong around Japan, it'd be interesting to get your insights on that one, Minako. Um, but you know what you're talking about. You know, let's take an example. If I was going uh, to Europe in, in future, you know, without the arrangements we have now to receive training, then that would be fine. I could travel on that, you know, short-term yeah. business visa. But if I was going to deliver training, if there was any sort of remuneration directly or indirectly, and it all depends on the, the different member states have different rules, then I need a proper business visa. And that can take a few days or a week or whatever in, in a good situation. But actually, countries like Poland, I think we looked at that yeah. one, it's up to two months, I think it was. Yeah, all over, um, yeah. And, you know, and then you've got the whole costs and, and, and the complexity and the systems that you need to introduce to track it, to monitor it. Same applies if you want to hire people from other, you know, going forward, if you want to hire someone from Europe to here or vice versa, or you're intra-corporate transferee, you want to move somebody within your organization. Yeah. Again, the cost and the expense and potentially the refusal, depending on what the policies are. So it is a really um, big issue. Um, and actually, you know, you, you looked at a lot of that, didn't you? For, yeah. You were like, kind yeah, of leading on this, yes. I think, for us. What was your, um, you know, that or more generally, what were your sort of tips that you, from your experience okay, of doing yeah. it for services organisation? That's a good question. Although, you put me on the spot there. Yeah. I'm not the one meant to be asking the questions. For. <laughs> um, so I think... The point that you met, we've been talking, we talked about data, but having the systems in place to track who's going where. So we use a system called My Trips, where you don't only uh, put in where you're going, you put in why you're going and the activities you're going to do. So that gives full data transparency to what that activity is. Um, because I think it's really important, the point you just made about different countries having different rules. Mm -hmm. I don't think I understood mm -hmm. that at the beginning of this, and I think a lot of people didn't either. They thought it would be an EU-level agreement, whereas actually it's not, it's country by country. So you need to look at each case by case and whether the list of activities that's planned is permissible or is going to require some sort of a work permit. And the systems provides the backbone of being able to do that. I think being really clear on there not being one set of generic rules because they stick in mind. So you gave an example then about training. That's going to stick in a lot of people's minds yeah, now. But it's, you know, it's a broad brush rule and won't be true in some cases. Yeah, so we try true. to avoid yep. putting you know, broad brush rules out there. 
And lastly, um, being really clear that there are implications for individuals. So there's a business risk, and you talked about some of them then and the complexity and the cost. But actually, you don't, as an individual, want to get caught doing something in a country that you weren't meant to be there doing because that has implications for your own personal travel, not just in a business capacity, but in a personal capacity thereafter. And making that clear to people so that they take ownership of the risk too would be one of the tips that I would have. Right, enough of you lot grilling me. Um, I think we're pretty much out of time here. Dom, I'd like to just zoom back out. Let's look at the horizon again. Give us, give us again a flavour of the kind of the big picture of trade and services that we can maybe look forward to for the future with, with some hope and optimism. Well, I would encourage people to go to our website and to look at a, a nice, one of my colleagues, Yuval Fertig, who's very good with data, has managed to do a nice map of the world and showing what the UK's exports and services look like if you adjusted the size of the country. Right, to okay. Rather, to, so this is quite difficult on, on podcast. Yes. Instead of being the land mass as it currently is, it's, it represents the size of the services exports. Okay, right. And so you can see each country and it's a strange looking um, map. But some of, the, some of the things that stand out there are what makes it interesting. So for me, South Africa is, is a very interesting one. I've actually just come back from a secondment yeah. um, to South Africa. And I, I, I understand that it, Britain is, I mean, the Premier League, for example, is far more popular than the local football league and things like David Attenborough and the BBC that I mentioned. So I think Britain, British services are associated with some level of quality. So they are pursued and they are preferred. Um, and because of that, you see South Africa on that map is huge. So yeah. the rest of Africa just seems to be a little sliver. And then South Africa kind of sticks out literally like a sore thumb. Okay. And it's actually bigger on the map than Japan. Now, Japan might be slightly further away, but Japan's economy would be more than 10 times bigger than South Africa's. So that sort of thing's interesting because it's these kind of nuances. It's the preference for cultural imports and exports and the kind of history and the rules that people have forged over decades and generations that are going to be the basis of any future trade relationship, not just gravity. So whilst we did some interesting work on size and distance, I think my message would be that there's, there's other things that matter too. Okay. Thank you very much. And thank you all. There's clearly a lot more for us to explore um, on the topic of trade and services, but we are definitely out of time. Um, lots to reflect on. If you would like to find the map that Dom was just describing, you can find it on pwc.co.uk forward slash Brexit, along with all our other Brexit insights. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. And bye for now.